Do you know this is the last sermon in our series, Summer at Sea? We did it, church. We made it all the way through the summer. We made it through the sea. We're in Nineveh, and we're here to wait expectantly to see what God is going to do to Nineveh and what God is going to do to Jonah. There's just one unfortunate part about the preaching of this sermon, and that is exactly what Pastor Evan was saying, just how difficult this sermon is to preach, because I've entitled this sermon, The Revival You Don't Want. And this is exactly the attitude and disposition of the prophet Jonah. As a pastor, we often talk about revival, and other pastor friends I know, we talk about revival, and I've heard it over and over and over again. People say, we just need another revival like they had in Nineveh. We need another revival like like the prophet Jonah. And I think often we forget that Jonah started a revival that he didn't even want. And the only reason revival happened wasn't because of Jonah, it was because of God. One might say that this revival happened in spite of of Jonah's reluctancy. And so even in our hearts, and we're going to get together tonight, and we're going to pray, and we're going to pray for souls to be saved, and might I dare say a revival in New Braunfels, and we're going to pray about it, and we're going to ask for it, and we're going to desire it, but the real question is, do you really want revival in New Braunfels? If you do, you must drastically increase your concern for the lost if you want revival, and if you want to reflect a genuine compassion of God. Did you hear that, church? Right? We say that we want to see people saved, don't we? We say it. We say it. But do we live it? Do we live as people who love and have a genuine concern for the lost? Or put another way, do we have compassion for people who don't know Christ? Because when we look at the book of Jonah, we see that Jonah has no compassion for Nineveh. But yet God still had a plan for Nineveh. God had a plan for the enemies of Jonah. And God has a plan for your enemies and for my enemies. And God's great desire is to see people come to know Him. And He desires to have a people who would reflect His genuine compassion to the world. Because you see, that is the problem with us not reflecting the genuine compassion of God. It's that our lack of concern for the lost portrays a false view of God's compassion to a lost world. Can we, can we at least agree to that? Right? Wait, our lack of concern and compassion for lost, doesn't that give people a really strange view of the kind of God that we gather every week and worship? That we have a God that we've sang about, that we've read in Scripture, that we're going to see it again. We have this God. He's gracious, and He's merciful, and He's slow to anger, and He's abounding in steadfast love, and He relents from disaster. But this isn't the kind of God that people believe is in Scripture. But over and over again, this was the number one way that God is described in Scripture. That He is holy, that He is gracious, that He is merciful, that He is slow to anger, that He abounds in steadfast love, and He desires not disaster but redemption. Why is it, church, that that isn't how God is known in the world? Might I suggest, and dare I might say, that it has much more to do with the compassionless, non-gracious, quick-to-anger church that they see. Might I dare say that it has more to do with a church that doesn't abound in steadfast love and a church who doesn't relent from disaster but welcomes it. You see, this isn't an easy sermon, but I promised God in my prayers that I would not beat the sheep this morning because I would find myself beating the shepherd as well, at least the under-shepherd. And so as hard as this sermon is to preach, my prayer is that in this final chapter of Jonah, we see God correcting this mistake in Jonah's life, and my hope is that we will see God correct this same mistake in our life at Compass Bible Church. So look at verse 1 in Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, but it displeased. What displeased Jonah? The fact that, that, that they had repented, that Nineveh repented, and God desired to relent. And when Jonah preached 
40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was the message that he went to send to Nineveh. He was in the city and he was preaching it. And what he saw was something that appalled him. And it was this, his enemies bowed before the Lord, tore their clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes and repented of their sin. And God relented from his disaster and he was appalled. He was upset. He was angered at the unmerited favor of God being given to his enemies. That's what that word grace means. Jonah was angry that the grace of God was given to people that he didn't care about. You see, Jonah's problem was that he didn't like the way that God does business. He doesn't like the fact that God's gracious merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from that. He didn't want any of that. What he wanted was what so many church members want. We just want, we want the evil and wicked to be destroyed. We don't want anything to do with them. We want them all gone. I hope they don't repent. I hope they, I hope they get what they deserve. That's what Jonah was preaching. That's really what his heart was preaching. You see, Jonah didn't want to be the conduit of God's grace. He didn't want to be that conduit, that thing in which God's grace moved through to preach to a city to get them to turn from their sin and trust in God. He didn't want to be that conduit. And my concern is, is when we hear sermons like this one, that we may get uncomfortable. And are we going to get uncomfortable? Because the truth be told, we don't like to be the conduit of God's grace to a majority of people. My concern is... That we don't want to be the vessel, the tool that God moves through and works through to go out into New Braunfels. Right? And as much as you may love New Braunfels, as much as this is a good place, a conservative place, a red place, as much as you think it is those good things, it's a wicked city. And God wants to see wicked people turn to Him. And He wants to use you as a tool and as a conduit that His grace would move through to reach the people in this city. But the problem is, is we don't want to be used that way. Truth be told, we don't desire to be used that way. We have too much to do. We have a busy schedule. We have things we'd rather be doing. And so did Jonah. And God had much to say to him about his lack of compassion on a lost people. And so, church, if we want to change that, if we want to change that in our own lives, what we're going to have to do is we're going to take a good look at the kind of God that we serve and the kind of God that we know as Father, which just reeks of compassion, right? That we get to talk to this transcendent God who has been brought to us in Christ, and then we get to call God Father. Look at verse 2. We've got to look at the kind of God that we serve. And if we ever desire to put a true view, to put an accurate view of God's compassion out to the world, we're going to have to look at who God is, and then we need to imitate His character and His compassion. I want you to look at how Jonah in the Old Testament explains Him in verse 2, the end of verse 2. One, it says that He is a gracious God. One definition of the word gracious in the Old Testament was this. It was an action from a superior to an inferior. It was a gracious act to somebody who was here to somebody who was here. And it was an act where this person didn't deserve it. But yet this person who did not need to do it, did not have to do it, graciously, with unmerited favor, bestowed upon the lower, bestowed upon the inferior, Something that they had no claim to receive at all. You see, that's the graciousness of God. That He would take people who don't deserve anything and He would give them anyway. That we would take a God who owes no one anything and yet He would give even the life of His own Son. That whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. And that is my concern, church, is because often... Our definition of graciousness is I give to people here, right? Right? uh, People that I'm around, people that I know, people that I like, people that I love, these people who are kind of even with me, right? But it's so many of the other people in the world. I'm not talking about low in socioeconomics. I'm not talking about low in their social standing. I'm just talking about people that you don't see as equal to you in your day-to-day life. 
dare I might say your enemies, dare I might say political parties, dare I might say other cities, other states. We won't get there? We don't want to go there? Okay. All I'm saying is that's not the character of God. The character of God would never, ever say, no more people in New Braunfels. I don't want to see anyone else move in here. The infrastructure is not going to make it. You know, we can't, we're in too many people. The traffic's too bad. The graciousness of God would say, let the people come to me. Let the people come to hear the message of the gospel. That's the graciousness of God. That we would say to all people, Come. And let me give you mercy and grace, which is the second word, mercy. Right? That God is gracious and he is merciful. Right? It's the kind of mercy that you as a mom, I want you to think moms, dads too, but especially moms. And when you see your child struggling 10 yards away and you see that they need help, and what is the first thing that you do? You get on their level and you waddle over there like a duck and you help them. Because you're merciful. You don't want to see them struggle. You want to see them succeed. You want to see them, you want to see them on the right path. You want to help them and you want to nurture them. And it's the kind of mercy that we receive from God. That very thing that we deserve, we don't get. And God bestows upon us his mercy. God's gracious. He's merciful. And here's something that we all have a problem with, that he is slow to anger. Anybody else here quick to anger? Am I the only one that's quick to anger? Quick to frustration? Most of us say, I don't get angry, I just get frustrated. Okay, you get angry. All right, you get angry. Slow to anger. Do you know that's a Hebrew word that means long nostril? <laughs> did you know that? You didn't know that, did you? Uh, yeah, can you believe God just has just the biggest nose of anyone you've ever met? It's actually a saying, and long nostril just means this that God takes a lot of deep breaths when it comes to the disobedience of this world. That God just says, <sighs> a lot of patience. He's very long-nostrilled. He can fit a lot, of, a lot of wind up those nose of his. And that's the kind of God that we have. He's slow to anger. And when it comes to me, God's slow to anger. Anybody else, when it comes to you, God has to have a long nose when it comes to you, doesn't it? it comes to me, I know that's for sure. And we are grateful for that, aren't we? Jonah's grateful for that. And that's the, the point here is Jonah doesn't want God to have a long nose to Nineveh, but he wants him to have a long nose to him. And the concern with you and I is we want God to have a long nose to us, but we don't want God to have a long nose to other people. At least we don't care to think about it. We may not, we may not object that God would do that to other people, but we're sure not seeking to help people have that sense of God. And we're not sensing, we're not really looking and saying, I want those people to know that God has been so patient with them. And that he's slow to anger. And all that he wants to do is he's abounding in steadfast love, which is the second part. Right? God is being slow to anger because he's abounding in steadfast love. I mean, how many people need to know that about God? That he abounds in steadfast love. We talked about this last week, that it's his covenant-keeping, promise-keeping love. That he is faithful. That he's going to keep his promises. And he has an abundance. I love abounding. I just think of a gazelle. Like, like you look at a gazelle and it just abounds with this boundless energy, right? I mean, it's like that thing could just go for days. And it's like, yes, that's the kind of steadfast love of God. It just goes on and on and on and on and it outruns everything. And it wins every time. And that's the kind of steadfast, covenant-keeping love of God that we get to partake in and that that's why we should have compassion because other people don't get it. They don't get that. I'm not saying they don't get it here. I'm saying they don't get to receive that grace, that unmerited favor of God's covenant-keeping love. Do you know who gets that? People who are in Christ. That's the people who get it. That's it. So my desire as a pastor and as just a Christian is that people would get it here so they can get it here. So that I can let people know that we have a gracious, merciful God. He's slow to anger, and he wants to put you in his covenant-keeping family. His covenant-keeping love. He wants to adopt you so you too can call him father. And that's what angers you about Jonah. And that's what should anger you and me about ourselves. That we think that that's a bad thing that Jonah doesn't want to tell that to Nineveh. But I and we think it's a bad thing that we ourselves would keep it away from people that we communicate with every single day of our lives. And I love this, right? 
relenting, the last word, relenting from disaster. Literally means that God desires to turn from. To relent is, is where we often get that word, oftentimes repent. I love this, right? that he turns, that he's going this way. And God says, my desire is to turn from disaster, to relent from it. My desire is to see people repent, to see people turn, rather than seeing them destroyed. But you do realize that is God's desire, and you can object and say, then why doesn't God just not do it? Because that's unjust. And we talk about this week in and week out. God has to put justice on the earth, and he has to reign in truth, and he has to reign in justice, because that's what a loving God does. We can't have lawbreakers running loose all over eternity. And so there has to be perfect truth and perfect justice, and it has to reign And when he reigns in perfect truth and perfect justice, those who are in Christ are going to say, that's a perfectly loving father. He would let no bad thing reign. And that's why we have a desire and a compassion to preach God's grace and mercy and his slow to anger and his abounding and steadfast love. Because although he wants to relent from disaster, he understands that it is justice that must be served and it's justice that will reign. And so our job is to get as many people from this boat to this boat because we understand that one day this one's going to sink and it's already sinking and there's only one boat that's going to float and it's the one that is in Christ. Church, is my great desire to see us increasing our concern for the lost, that we would reflect a genuine compassion for God. And then we're going to get into the anger again. Let's look at Jonah. Just look at Jonah. Just look at him in verse 1. It's it's the worst. And it's me too, right? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. It says angry four, five different times in these nine verses. It just shows that his just absolute disgust over God's unmerited favor on other people. And then God asks there in verse 4, God says, do you do well to be angry? It sounds like old English. He's basically just saying, are you right to be angry? Are you righteous? Is that, are you righteously angry? Like, are you right in your anger? And then Jonah didn't answer the question, did he? Right? God asks if he was right Does it do any good? And that's really the question. Does his anger, did his anger do any good? Did it do any good for the glory of God? Did it do any good for the people of Nineveh? Well, the answer is obviously no. You and me, we may not be angry like Jonah. I don't see a lot of angry CBCers. But it's our own lack of compassion that shows great apathy towards the grace of God on others around us. I may not see a lot of angry people at Compass, but I see a lot of apathetic people at Compass. I see a lot of apathetic people who, you know what, if God saves them, if, if, if they hear the gospel, that's fine and dandy, and if they don't, ah, it's just God's will after all. God's will is that none should perish, but all come to eternal life. And God's will is that you would go share the gospel with everyone. You leave the saving up to Him. He's told us what to do. We don't leave anyone out of an opportunity to respond to the grace of God. Right? Are you apathetic? Are you apathetic? Do you want to, want to admit it now, or do we want to work towards that? Okay, we'll work toward it. All right. I want to ask some questions, and I don't want you to raise your hand. These are actually on your application questions as you do your devotional time this week that you will be able to answer more in depth. But just in your mind, answer these questions. When you drive around town, do you see people as an obstacle to your errands? Or souls who need Jesus? When people offend you, do you react with displeasure or respond with compassion? Do you see people as an opportunity for personal advancement or for personal gain? Or do you see people as an opportunity for gospel advancement? Last question. Is your fear of the world's influence on your family greater, greater than your commitment to influence people for God? These questions are used to add a minimum. Just add a minimum. They're, they're used to show our own apathy towards the grace of God on others. 
But we want it because we pray for it every day. God, have grace on me today. God, have mercy on me today. God, forgive me for that thing today. Forgive me for my quick to anger today. But when it comes to those other people, eh, if you do it, you do it. As long as you do it for me. As long as you do it in my life, I think we're going to be good today, God. Like Jonah's anger, does your apathy do any good? Does it do any good? Does it glorify God? Is it good for people? Is it right? Is it productive for anything that would advance the kingdom of God? Does our apathy, does our eh, attitude, does it do anything to show people that God is really compassionate? It doesn't. Because when people look at an apathetic church and apathetic Christians, they really see, eh, guess God doesn't really care either. If the people that he redeemed and the people that he literally placed his spirit inside... If, if that's their attitude, that has to be God, because if the Spirit really does transform people, it transforms them into the likeness of God. And if that's what God is like, because that's what God should be like, because biblical theology tells me that if I have the Spirit, I'm conformed into the nature of God in the sense that I reflect His attributes and His character. But yet, if that character to an outside world says, I'm apathetic, what other option did the world have to have than to see that God is an apathetic God? Are we on the same page, church? I know it's hard, but it's hard on me too. I've been wrestling with this all week long. Ask my wife. I said, I'm burdened. I'm hurt. I'm inflicted. Like, I'm hurt. Like, I, could, I realize that I'm this way too. So this isn't me pointing a finger at you. It's me just wrapping us all up and saying, this is just us. And that's not what God wants. And this, this really hurts me when I look at Jonah, what Jonah does after this. It's the worst. Look at, look at verse 5. At verse 5, it says, Jonah went out of the city, and he sat at the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. Right? I mean, the, what a booth is and what a booth is made out of is not important, but I mean, just for you to know, it's, it's a temporary dwelling. It was very popular in, uh, in the Old Testament. They, you ever heard of the Feast of Booths, right? That was a, the Old Testament Jewish festival. They'd make temporary dwellings uh, throughout their generations so they could remember and their posterity could remember when they fled Egypt. It was a remembrance ceremony, but it, it doesn't matter because the point isn't that he made a booth. The point is this, that he took time to go build a booth to sit and cross his arms and cross his legs in hopes that God would really condemn Nineveh. And he was going out there to wait and see, God, what are you going to do? Did they repent just exactly right? Did they, did they get on their knees exactly right? Because I want to see what's going to become of this city. Right? Jonah, this attitude toward these people, the kind of cross your arms, hope they get what they deserve kind of attitude. But I ask, do you do that? I'm asking if you build booths. Well, I'm asking this. Has anyone ever sped past you on the highway? And then you drive a few miles and you're looking around and you see them pulled over on the side of the road and you laugh. Anyone done that? No? Okay. Mm hmm. What about when you prove someone wrong and you're just kind of waiting for them to get to the end of their conversation, cross your arm just to say, I told you so. I told you. Anyone do that? All I'm saying is I hope at least to this point in the sermon, we can as a church, that we can just do this, it's point number one, but we can at least do this from what we've heard so far, that we can admit that we aren't as compassionate as we thought. Can we at least do that, church? Can we write that down? Admit you aren't as compassionate as you thought. Like maybe you thought before you came in here that your compassion was here, that I, I, I have so much compassion for people. I, have, I just, so much and now after we just look and do some introspection and look at the Bible and say, what does God's word say about this? Then we're at this point and we're like, man, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm not. Because all week long, I kept, God kept knocking me off of my ladder of compassion. And I was up on this, like, I knew I wasn't the most compassionate person, but I thought I was close to the top. And then Tuesday came around and he knocked me down a, a, a rung. And then Wednesday and, and Tuesday, and Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And yesterday I'm like, I can't, I'm not even, I don't even have a ladder. I don't even, I'm not even on the ladder. And I'm thinking, maybe a lot of us need to go ladder shopping, right? And we need to go get some ladders and start getting up the ladder of compassion. And if we can admit that you aren't as compassionate as you thought, can we also admit something else while we're at it? You can just write it down beside it. Can we admit that God is more compassionate than you thought? Can we put that down? Like, you're 
not as compassionate as you thought. And when we look at the text of Scripture, we notice that God is actually quite a bit more compassionate than we thought. In college, I had a husky, and you already know where this is going if you have a husky, okay? Man, he was the worst. He was the worst. He was stubborn, mischievous, mischievous, that's a wrong way to say that, mischievous, disobedient. And, like, and when I think back to this dog, I think I understand Jonah completely now. Because like, I, I, I was angry with that dog every day of my life. I remember one time I opened the door and let him out for about 20 minutes. And I'm like, go to the bathroom. I have a fenced-in yard. It was very nice, very nice yard compared to a lot of yards. And the dog was out there. And I'm like, I'm going to go in, get me a drink. And I walk back outside. He's dug a hole under the fence. And I live out in the country at this point, And he runs across the busiest highway that I'm around. And so, I'm like, of course, i got to go after him. And I'm running after this dog. And, you know, he, you know, if you know huskies, you know what they're about to do. He looks at me, and he kind of squats down a little bit. You know, and he kind of wiggles his tail, sticks his tongue out. I'm just so angry. And uh, I take a step towards him, and he darts off, and he jumps in between some barbed wire fences into this ginormous cattle pasture. And I'm like, great. <clears throat> Someone's going to shoot me because they think I'm stealing their cows. Uh, and not to mention, I jump over the fence, I get in there, and they're the biggest bulls that I've ever seen in my entire life. And I'm just sitting here like, I hate this dog so much. And I ran after that dog, and I ran after that dog, and I ran after him, and I, you know what I realized? I'm not as fast as a dog. And I didn't catch that dog. And you know what I did? I turned around, defeated, very angry, all right, and went back into my house. And about an hour and a half later, do you know what happened? He was back in my backyard. And I'm going to tell you what. I have never related to Jonah more in my life. I, was, I just hated that dog so much. And I just, mmm. But the point of the matter is, aren't we all that short-tempered in a lot of ways? It just takes one unfortunate situation, maybe two. It takes one person pushing your buttons. It takes one person breaking your, your, un, your expectations, your unmet expectations, and you're just over the wall about it. And yet God has all of his expectations written out in Scripture. And we have them right in front of us. And we break them. And when we break them, we're like, guys, it's just one. It's just two. It's just three. And he's just so long-nostrilled. He's like, I just want you to repent. I mean, what if that's how we acted in, in the world when we went outside? Somebody backed into us in the parking lot. And we just said, you know what matters is you're okay. I'm okay. Do you know Jesus? Because that's what's really important. That fender doesn't mean anything. You know, it means something in your eternity. Come on, see, church? You see what I'm saying? Like, our, our compassion is so low that we don't even look at opportunities that are kind of misfortunate, unfortunate on our part, as opportunities for gospel advancement. I want you to, just for an application point, like, to just to kind of just drive home the fact that you may not be as compassionate as you thought. Uh, when you leave today, and you go to lunch, or wherever you go, you go to HEB, you go to Target, I don't know who goes to Target, but if you go to Target, uh, I want you to, to look at somebody and say, well, I dare to share the gospel with that person right now. Ask yourself, I'm pretty sure that that person probably not a Christian. Why? Because I know because statistically, uh, most people aren't, right? Narrow is the road that leads to life, and few will find it. Right? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Did we not do all these good things? And he says, well, depart from me. I never knew you, right? We understand that there's many, uh, there's a narrow road that leads to life. Few find it. There's a wide road that leads to destruction, and many will find it. And all I'm saying is you can look out in the community, and the odds are when you go up to somebody, they don't know Jesus. Even in New Braunfels, Texas, believe it or not. Even in New Braunfels, Texas. And I'm just saying, would you dare to share the gospel at that very moment? And I asked that not to, not because I'm the same. Okay, I, did, I dared myself the other day, and I was like, I didn't do it. Uh, and I'm saying that not to convict you, not to convict me, but I'm just saying, listen, our compassion is a lot lower than we originally thought it was. So just, just sit right there with that for a minute. Just sit right there. This is also in part the lesson that God is teaching Jonah. Like, Jonah, you're not compassionate. You're a prophet of Israel. You're a prophet of God's people, and you have no compassion. Look at, look at verse 6. Verse 6. 
Now the Lord God appointed a plan. A little side, little side point here, which isn't a side point, it's the main point. I want you to notice every single time God did something. Right? The Lord God appointed a plan. A plan just didn't happen to be there, and God said, ah, that's a nice plan, I'll use that. No, God did it. Right? God appointed a plan. God was teaching Jonah something important about God's mercy, and God did the whole thing. Right? God made it all happen. Verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, listen, here it is again, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. The, worm, or the, the plant is an object lesson. The plant is an object lesson that we would equate to God's mercy. So you can even write that. God's plant equals God's mercy. And then God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. So that withered. When the sun rose, what had happened? God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. What a drama queen, right? Verse 9. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry for that plant. Angry enough to die. It's like, dude, come on. But this, is this not you and me? How many times are we overdramatic about things when we're mad? Come on. This is us. This is you and me. It's a picture of you and me in the Bible. All right. But I want you to just look at this verse by verse. Right? What you see in verse 6, the beginning of it, is God is showing grace on Jonah by appointing the plant. And this is the object lesson. This plant is, is to protect Jonah, is to give Jonah some relief and a respite in 110 degree weather. Anybody wish they had a plant over their head here in New Braunfels this summer? Okay. Same concept, right? Average degree where he was during the time, 110 degrees. So he made a booth over his head, and it's, you know, not the best, okay? Uh, and he put a plant, and he said, this plant is going to do, do wonders in your life, Jonah. And this plant showed the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God. He said, I'm going to cover you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to protect you. And so he appointed this plant to cover him, to show him God's unmerited favor, even though Jonah is so just distraught and stubborn and angry, he still showed his mercy, and look at the, the end of verse 6. Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. I, this is just so, ah, just so angry. He's angry. He hates Nineveh. And then God does something for him. And he's like, thank you. I just love it. Thank you for the grace that you've given me. God, thank you. But those people over there, God, how dare you? But thank you, God. Give it to me. Give me more. Give me more. I mean, that's what we're seeing here. And then he does it in Jonah 2. When, when he gets swallowed by the big fish, and he's in the big fish, and what does he do? Sends out this great prayer. God, I cried out to you, and you heard me. Thank you so much for saving me from the pit, save me from the bottom. I mean, he's the greatest poet ever because he's just so dramatic. And he's just like, I just thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. But why would you give that grace to them? Why would you give mercy to those people? And then again, thank you, God, for your grace and mercy. Thank you. I'm exceedingly glad because of your mercy. Verse 7. Then Jonah sees a problem. This is where God's setting up the conflict. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. See, God was teaching Jonah a lesson with the plant. Say, Jonah, son, uh, that grace that I'm giving you, you love, and everyone loves the grace of God. But what happens when I take that grace away from you, Jonah? What happens when I take that unmerited favor of me away from you? You didn't do anything for that plant. You don't deserve that plant. What if I just took it away? And he sees that. And now it withered. In verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. He says, what happens if I just kill it all together? It's withered and it's still there and you kind of get to see it. What happens if I just kill it all together? The sun beat down on the head of Jonah and he was faint. See, now Jonah's distraught at the removal of God's mercy. He's like... I want to die. I would rather die than live. And that's the point of God's mercy. Is it's unbearable to live life without the mercy of God, yet you want the mercy of God, and you don't want to give the mercy of God to other people who can't bear it. Do you see, do you see the wickedness in the life of Jonah? And in verse 9, God sets up the punchline. And he asks, Jonah, are you right to be angry for that plant? And he said, yes, I'm right. I'm so right. I'm angry. Angry enough to die, I'm so right. It's like, come on. What we see here is this, guys. Jonah loved a plant that he had nothing to do with creating. God just loved a people that he had everything to do with creating. We have Jonah who cared more about his plant 
than lost souls. And I don't even want to get into that place right now with how much more we love our plants and our pets more than we care about lost souls. Can we just, we'll just maybe talk about that some other time? Meet me in my office this week? Okay. God cared more for the lost souls than he did in pronouncing judgment. He cared more about those people that he had created, that he had formed them in their mother's wombs, that he had knitted them together, that he knew all of their days before there was yet any of them. And Jonah wanted them condemned, and God said, they're my people. He, God said, Jonah, you want that plant more than you want those people to know me. See, Jonah had a heart condition, and I know it's a deadly one, heart condition. It was called selfishness. You see, Jonah cared more about me, cared more about him, than he did God. We always say it this way, like, God, you care more about me than thee. I care more about me than thee. This reality is so often we care more about how we are doing, we care more about the things that we care about, than we care more about the things that God cares about. And Jonah found out real quick that when his comfort was taken away, where his real cares in his heart was. And I said, I said it this way in point number two, we at least need to care for lost souls above our own comfort. Care for lost souls above your own comfort. Like we, like Jonah, we love receiving the mercy of God, don't we? The mercy of God. We get God's unmerited favor. We get things that we don't deserve because of his mercy, and we just love it. But we're not out to give other people that. We're not out to, I'm not, and, I, and I'm talking about eschatological hope. I'm talking about salvation, and I know that we can take it to the hands and feet things, which you should be doing that also. Like, a lot of times, we don't even want to forgive people because we don't want to show them mercy. We don't want to give people compassion and grace because they don't deserve it. It's like, have you ever read the Bible? You ever heard the gospel before? Isn't that the whole gospel? We get what we don't deserve. We don't get what we do deserve. And, and I know, and I want to take it to the hands and feet, but I want to take it to the eschatological hope the salvific hope, because that's the real problem. Listen, if I'm a paralytic, my real problem is not paralysis. Do you realize that? My problem isn't heart failure. My problem isn't anything that ails me here. My problem is eternity. That is my real problem. And, we're, and oftentimes we're so much concerned about the ailment here that we can see that we're not concerned about the ailment that's here. And that is my real concern is we have more compassion over the broken finger then we have compassion over the broken soul who's separated from God. And that's what I mean, care for lost souls above your own comfort. Right, let me turn you to one scripture. Romans 9. Go to Romans 9. In Romans 9, we have the Apostle Paul probably writing the most in-depth systematic theology of the New Testament. And there's something really interesting that he does that I still don't completely understand when it comes to my own lack of compassion. And when I don't understand something in Scripture, my first inclination isn't the Scripture's wrong, but my first inclination is I don't know enough. I'm not wise enough. I'm not, I don't, I'm not smart enough to know what's going on. I haven't learned what I need to learn. And this is one of those areas that I'm like, are you kidding me? And this is what Paul does. I just don't understand it, but it's just it's mind-boggling when it comes to how much Paul wants to see other Jews saved. This is what he says. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul just says this, I would rather myself being cut off from Christ. Do you know what being cut off from Christ is? Hell. He's saying, I wish that I would be separated from Christ if only that my brothers, and he's not just talking about my brothers, like we're not talking about our blood brothers. We're not talking about our family. He's just talking about Israel. He's just talking about the people that he knew in Israel, the people he knew in Jerusalem, these Jews who had thought they were faithful and believed in God, but they, but they shunned Jesus. They denied Christ. He said, I wish that I myself would be thrown into hell if they could just be saved. Talk about the compassion that Paul had. I mean, it's compassion that I know nothing of. It's a compassion that is so far beyond my compassion that I can't even relate. But it's worth noting because it's worth noting that when you have an experience with Christ, your whole life changes. You go from persecuting 
to preserving the gospel. We go from cutting off Christians of life and then being desired to be cut off from Christ yourself if they could just know Christ. And I'm just saying that's the compassion that Scripture teaches. And I know that none of us would be so bold to jump headlong into hell for the sake of others. Not me. Not me. And I know that's hypothetical. We could never lose our salvation. But I would never forfeit my relationship with God for the sake of anyone else. But Paul would. And I said, what a compassionate man. What a man who loves and has compassion for people and for his brothers. None of us would jump headlong into hell for the sake of others, but at least we can do this. We can't elevate our care, right? And that's the goal, right? I, I said sit over here because we need to admit that we aren't as compassionate as we thought, and then we need to kind of sit here for a minute and just say, okay, we need to elevate our care. Just one rung up the ladder today, right? Just one rung, two rungs. I mean, if you're real, if you're real froggy, jump three rungs, okay? We just need to elevate our care. Just elevate it for lost souls. It seems like you know, when our church, when we do a church-wide outreach, hey, man, that's the place to be. I was so encouraged by those who showed up for the outreach yesterday and the conversations they had and the, the welcoming uh, that we had all over the community when we went into neighborhoods. And that's not always the case, right? We know that that's, that, wow, what a grace and mercy of God that when we had these conversations with people, many of them were so, uh, were so kind and they, they said, you know what, I've been looking for a church. Or can you tell me more? Or we'd love to come to the back-to-school bash. And there was a great opportunity for us to invite them into our home and set before them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just elevate your care a little bit. I know it was hot. Wasn't it hot? Was it hot when you were there? Wasn't it hot out there? It was very hot. Uh, But it was great, wasn't it? It was great to engage with people about God's church and about his gospel. Elevate our care. We need to be involved corporately in these things together, doing outreaches. Uh, here's a, just a small way to elevate your care. When you go, I mean, I'm just talking small. I'm talking about like half rungs. I'm talking about just lift up your foot a little, okay? Like when you go out to eat, slip a little invite card right there in the check slip, a little invite card. You can just invite people. I mean, what I'm saying, this is passive elevating your care. I mean, I'm not, you're not even having to have the conversation. You're saying, I'm just going to let Pastor Hayden do it, take care of that. You just show up on Sunday, he'll take care of it. But you were, you were a conduit, weren't you? You were a conduit. They couldn't be here without you inviting them. You're a conduit. I'm a conduit. We can put our conduits together, and then we can be the conduit of God's grace going out to people. You see what I'm saying? I'm saying just elevate it just a little bit. Say, you know what, from now on, I'm going to commit to doing this thing every single day. Just one little thing here, one little thing there. You can elevate. And I'm talking about if you're mature in here, what I mean that is like if you're saying, yes, I need to know it's much more than that. All right, then you need to be committing to sharing the gospel with people weekly, regularly. Right? You know the cost. Right? You wrestle with this too. And you need to be the one who, you need to be taking people out to coffee and starting gospel conversations. I mean, that's, I, see, I see so much fruit when I meet with people. I go out to coffee with them, and I talk to them. And, yeah, I grew up in the church. Well, tell me more. Okay, well, you know, I, I've known about God. Well, tell me about when you, became, when you got saved. Tell me about your conversion. What do you mean? Well, tell me about when, when you came to the realization you need to turn from your sins and trust in Christ. Well, I don't know what you mean. Well, let me tell you what I mean. The Bible teaches gospel. I'm just saying, let's go, church. Let's have compassion for people. Uh, P.E., this last week, P.E.'s Pastor Evan, we call him P.E. We had uh, some people come in and install an AC that isn't completely working, but whatever, that's beside the story. Uh, And these guys came in, and by the time I got up here, they all had back-to-school bass flyers in their hand, and he was talking to them about the church and inviting them to church, and I said, all right, all right. And so uh, literally like three hours later, we had some people come in, some people giving us a quote on cleaning something on that side of the building, that needs to be done commercially, and I said, all right, it's my turn, all right, and I'm like, I'm like, you guys uh, go to church anywhere? Nope, we're brand new in town. I'm like, come on, like, (laughs) I'm like, come on, it was that easy. No, we're brand new in town. We just got here last week. I was like, y'all should come to church. Okay, we sure will. Invite them to the back-to-school bash. It's a father-son duo. The son's going to come hang out at our life group in a couple of weeks. I'm just like, come on, guys, it's that easy, and then from there, you can have the gospel conversations. I'm just saying, it's just a little bit of a little bit of care, a little bit of elevation. 
And here's how we can do it. When we consider that eternity is at stake, it's eternity that's at stake. Small amounts of personal discomfort prove insignificant in comparison. Small amounts of personal discomfort in comparison to eternity, in comparison to the reality of heaven and hell, insignificant. I tell Kayla, I, and let me just tell you, once, the hardest thing for me to do is going out into neighborhoods and knocking on doors. So hard. It is. I'm, I'm just like, oh, man, I've got to go knock on this person's door. They don't want me here. They don't want me here. This is what Satan tells me. This is what my flesh tells me. And I go knock on the door, and they open. They're like, hey. And I'm like, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> you want me? And I, it's just so great that God just over and over again says, listen, I'm doing my will here. I'm doing my will. I want people saved. And I want faithful people going out and being the conduit of my grace. And I'm just saying, a little discomfort actually provides a lot, a lot more holiness in your life than you think. When you will step out in, in your life, step out in some discomfort, and realize that God will use that to do something great. And it's all about keeping proper perspective, right? And to, and to finish up, like, it's all about proper perspective. And that's what Jonah is taught by God in the final two verses. Proper perspective. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 there in Jonah 4. And it says, The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. He's like, you literally didn't even have a relationship with this plant. You couldn't even get to know this plant, even if you tried. It wasn't even around that long. And he's saying this, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? It's like, you had nothing to do with that plant. I had everything to do with Nineveh. I founded the city. I made sure everyone in there had everything they needed. They were protected. Like, I formed all of them. I created every single one of them. I know them by name. I know how many hairs are on their heads. I know how many days until they each will perish. I know everything about them. You didn't know that plant, but you had more pity on that plant than you have on this city. And he says this, there are more than 120,000 people in Nineveh. You know how many people are in New Braunfels? Right under 120,000. That speaks to me a lot in this culture, in this moment we live in. It's like Nineveh's about the same size as New Braunfels. And it just speaks to me so much because the reality is in Nineveh, we have people who don't know their right hand from their left. And in New Braunfels, we have people who don't know their right hand from their left. And we have a city that needs the gospel. We have a city that, is, that God is preparing to receive the good news and all that God needs is people who are compassionate enough to care for lost souls above their own comfort who will do this, and it's point number three. People that will compassionately call people to repentance. Compassionately call people to repentance. Right? And if you have, the, I mean, and I don't, I don't know, maybe you're one of those people who say, well, repentance, that's such a big angry word. Is it? Because this whole time we've talked about God's, God's character and his command for people to repent. Has it sounded angry at all? It isn't. It's redemptive, right? Calling people to repent tells them, turn your anger away from the Lord and turn to him. Repentance isn't anger. It's the fact that God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he's relenting from disaster, and he wants you to relent from eternal punishment. That's what repentance is. This isn't a big angry God thing. This is a gracious God who desires to see people saved, and if they would turn from their sins and trust in Christ... They would be, and that's why we have to compassionately. It, it takes compassion. Right? It takes two things, at least in Scripture, when we, we look at compassionately calling people to repentance. One is Romans 1.16, which says what? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation for all who believe. Right? So we have to at least start there. Nobody can come to know the compassion of God without responding to the gospel by turning from their sins and trusting Christ. But there's also a reality in 1 Peter 3.15 that when people ask you for the hope that you have in you, you answer them, and you always have an answer, but you give them an answer with what? Gentleness and respect, right? There's this compassion for people that says, I'm unashamed of the gospel, and I want you to be unashamed of the gospel, but I'm also going to be respectful and gentle to the reality of you because that's the character of God, that he is merciful, and gracious, and slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Right? I'm not ashamed, but I'm also going to respect and be gracious and merciful and slow to anger. You see, you're going to lack compassion. And, and this is something I'm internalizing. I love you guys. Like, it is so easy for me to love this church. And I don't mean this building. I care less about this building in the grand scheme of things. I, we can meet somewhere else if you love me enough to be there. Right? I don't care. Like, I love you guys. 
I love this church. My wife tells me all the time, you love this church? You love this church? I do. I love this church. I love all the people here, even the hard ones. <laughs> but the reality is, is we lack compassion for, for others uh, until we internalize their great need. Right? It's easy for me to have compassion on you guys because I get to know you and I know your great needs in your life. I know your great, like, oh, you struggle with this. They need, they need prayer about this. They need counseling for this. They need, I know, like this word, like I know this is hitting every one of us in the heart because I know you. Like I know you in this. And I know, like I know, we're, we're all on the same page here. Like I know this is convicting. And the reality is, is we don't know their great need. And that what I mean by this is we do know their great need, but we won't internalize it. You know their real need is to come to know Christ. You might want to cover it up. You may want to truncate it. You want to try to forget about it. But the reality is their greatest need is something you won't internalize. And we need to. If we're ever going to compassionately call people to repentance, we've got to see that their greatest need is Jesus. Their greatest need is to come to know the gospel. And that's why we go out and invite people to church. That's why we have walking clubs that we go, that we go out into neighborhoods and we walk and we talk to people about Jesus and we invite people to be a part of our life groups. And we go out and we invite you know, waiters and waitresses to come to church and we talk to our dentists and when they have our fingers in our mouth, we tell them about Jesus. Okay? Like every single time we have an opportunity, we're going, we're going to talk to people about God. And we're going to tell people that their greatest need is Jesus Christ. You see, we pity the city of New Braunfels because God pities the city of New Braunfels. And if we want to reflect the genuine compassion of God, we too are going to pity this city and desire to see them saved from judgment and brought into a right relationship with God that they too may be called sons and daughters of God. Would you stand with me as we pray and dismiss? God, my prayer is that this sermon does a couple of things in this church, God, if it would be your will, that it would, it would convict us, and, and that it would. God, my desire is, is that it convict us, uh, but it, didn't, it doesn't feel like a beating. It doesn't feel like, um, God, that there was an a, abuse, but that it was a reality check, that we truly don't feel compassion for people. And I pray that this sermon would do that, that it would give us a great conviction to be more compassionate, not on our own strength, but that your spirit would, God, give us compassion, that we would pray for that, and we wouldn't quench your spirit when your spirit convicts us to do something and moves us to engage with people, that we wouldn't say no, that we would just do it. And I pray that, God, that through that, we would see both the power of your word being proclaimed and obeyed, and that people, as they see the way that this church is compassionate, and that we are merciful and gracious and slow to anger, and that we ourselves would abound in love, and we ourselves would relent from disaster, that they would see your compassion in us, and that they would truly see the love that comes from you, that people would come to know you through turning from their sin and trusting in you. They would realize that the same love that you had is the same love that Christ had when he came down, and he gave us unmerited favor that he was merciful to us, slow to anger, abounding in the steadfast love even on the cross, and that through our faith in him that we would never taste disaster but eternal life. So God, as we leave, as we dismiss, I pray that you would impress that upon our hearts. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.